Bible reading of the Bible, and today's passage comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 2 to 16. I'll be reading from the ESV. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while, as it is I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in that matter. So although I write to you, I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boast I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice, because I have complete confidence in you. Amen. Thank you, Brother Simon. Uh, for those uh, of us who have been coming out for the past few weeks, we know that we've been going through uh, a journey through the gospel according to Matthew. Uh, but today we actually have a guest preacher. He's a returning guest preacher, Brother John Lee uh, from Grace Point uh, Church. So if you could give him a warm welcome as he comes up to preach on godly grief. Thank you, Brother John. On now? Okay, awesome. Uh, is this close enough? Okay, good. <laughs> yes, I, I have been given the privilege once again to be able to bring the word to you all as well. I think someone else was meant to preach today, but I don't know if he's preached here yet. Tom Lamb? Yeah, but he's, he's actually preaching at our church currently. And so David has asked whether I could fill in for today. I think he's somewhere enjoying his holiday at the moment because he needs to take a break every once in a while, which is good. Um, yes, for, for those of you who do not know me already, my name is John, and I'm one of the student ministers at Grace Point Presbyterian, and so our church is only just 10 minutes away from here, and so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm here to bring the word from 2 Corinthians. I don't know if you guys were here when I first preached on 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 
And here I've decided to uh, preach to you once again from the same book, but from chapter 7, and hopefully the Lord will be able to speak to all of us in terms of what he has to say. And so, um, if you guys could just open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Sorry, is my volume just fluctuating constantly? I can't tell. Yeah, but, okay, should be alright? Okay. What, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, just the passage that we've just read, and then I'll preach for us. So let me pray for us, shall we? Heavenly Father, Lord, I just want to ask that you will help me to preach with clarity and conviction as I bring the word forth to your people here this morning. May we open our hearts by your spirit to receive it, to be nourished by it, and to be comforted, and to be ever so more transformed by it as we listen to it and hear from you this morning. And I pray this in your son's precious name. Amen. Now, judging upon first impressions when I first inv was invited here to come and preach for you all, and I've made two observations about all of you here, okay? Uh, the first observation is that I've noticed that all of you here are a bunch of good-looking people, right? Right? And I can't say that with every church, but I could say that with this church, out of all the churches that I've preached so far, you guys are beautiful looking people, right? But the second thing that I've also noticed about this church here, about you all, is that many of you here love children, right? I think that's a fair thing to say, just judging from based on what I've seen so far. I think I see a lot of young families here with kids running around, and, and I also see young couples here who are about to start their own families very soon. You're about to have your first child, right? And, and that's exciting, okay? And I think there is something about a child that brings joy and a sense of enthrallment into our lives. Isn't that true? That, that having children is a unique and a wonderful God-given privilege. And, and it's a privilege to be able to be a parent as well. Even though I'm not a parent myself, okay, I'm, I'm sure that being a parent also, though, comes with many of its responsibilities. Um, I know this mainly because my parents had to raise me. <coughs> and, and one of the most difficult things and the most unpleasant things when it comes to parenting, at least from what I have seen, right, besides maybe changing the nappies, driving them to school every day, and uh, paying for their tutoring and whatnot, that one of the most challenging and the most difficult things about parenting is figuring out how to discipline uh, your children. Isn't that true, right? I think for those of you parents, maybe you would probably be agree, you probably agree at this point that even though we know that discipline is such a good thing, right? It's a it's a biblical thing to do when it comes to raising your children well. Discipline is never an enjoyable thing to do. We know that teaching children uh, to be responsible will lead them to grow down the, the, to lead them down the right path, right? And we know that restrained discipline contributes to the healthy upbringing of a child, but it's never easy, isn't it? Never easy. Uh, disciplining your own little ones is never an enjoyable experience. It's always awkward to do, and it's painful. Not only for your children, but for yourself as well, right? That's why we're always reluctant to do it. And no one here wants to ever inflict pain on our own children, and it's never a pleasant experience. And it is this sort of anxiety and 
fear that helps us to relate to some degree to the Apostle Paul in this text here, as we come to read it right in front of us. That in the context of this passage here, the Apostle Paul has a complicated relationship with the Corinthians here in Corinth, right? That the Corinthians here were, in many ways, children of the Apostle Paul. Uh, you know, with this particular church, Paul personally had planted this church, and he established this church, and he taught many of these Christians here the foundations of the gospel. And he pastored them, he loved them, he gave them counsel, he gave them direction. He was effectively their spiritual father. And yet, if you read 1 and 2 Corinthians, you'll quickly find out that things turned sour between Paul and these Corinthians, right? The church collectively fell into sexual sin, right? The, the church was fragmented by factions, and they also invited false teachers that infiltrated the church. And, and they effectively uh, booted Paul out of the church, and they no longer recognized him as a, an authoritative teacher who was sent by God. Right? Can you imagine that you're raising your family and you're raising your children for a long time, you're raising them faithfully in the Lord until your kids, when they get to those teenage years, right, decide that the only people that they ever want in their life are the friends that they've made from school and they just hate your guts, right? It's sort of like that, right? Now, I'm sure that a bunch of you know what I mean, right? Because a bunch of us had be, has been on, in that phase before, right? We've all, we've all used to hate our parents at some point in our life. And I think it is in this season of spiritual parenting that we see that Paul has felt a lot of pain. A lot of pain, a lot of hurt as well from seeing his beloved children in this dreadful, rebellious state. And so like any decent parent, he chooses to do what we often find to be the most uncomfortable thing to do. He is going to discipline them. And he does so by writing this severe letter, right? And, and before I say anything else, right, this is not the sort of letter that we have access to, right? It's not one or two Corinthians. That's not the letter that Paul sent to them. He actually sent them a letter that was in between the times of um, the time he wrote one Corinthians and two Corinthians. So here's a fun fact for those of you who didn't know. Paul actually wrote four letters to the Corinthians. We only have access to two, okay? And, and one of those letters was this severe letter that he wrote to the Corinthians. And, and what he wrote in this letter was basically a rebuke, right? It was a rebuke. It was a confrontation of the sin and rebellion that he has seen in these Christians to this church. And he wanted to set them straight because they were walking a crooked path. And so we don't actually know exactly what was written in that letter. Right? Because I just said before that we don't have access to that letter. But we can imagine that his words communicated the solemnity and the disappointment and the bitterness and the sadness and frustration he would have had with these Christians. And again, I just want to say that this is never an easy thing to do. Right? He felt bad about it. That's what he says. Right? He felt bad about writing this letter. It was not a pleasant experience for him. Discipline is something Paul never enjoyed doing. He felt bad about writing the letter for causing so much pain and grief to those he was writing to. But then as we see in verse 8, right, we see there in verse 8, Paul says something that is 
deeply profound. And it's going to be the segue into our passage here. Have a look at verse 8 in your Bibles, right? This is what he says, that even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, what he says. I have, even if I have caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. So he does not regret writing this letter. And the reason why he doesn't regret it is because, despite all odds, it has led to a fruitful outcome. Right? And what we see is that the Corinthians here were led to true and genuine repentance. And, and that is going to be the focus of our sermon today, as we explore the realm of forgiveness and, and the realm of transformation, right? And we're going to learn that genuine repentance is actually absolutely possible in the Christian life. Okay? Genuine repentance and change in the Christian life is absolutely possible. And how is that possible? Well, and we're going to explore this in three ways, okay? As we run down the passage, we're going to see a number of differences between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Um, we're also, secondly, going to see the marks of what this godly sorrow is. And then, thirdly, we're going to see how godly sorrow can be made possible, okay? And so those are the three points, and that's where I'm going to be taking us through, okay? Godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow. We're going to see the marks of godly sorrow, and then we're going to see how is that going to be possible. And so, let's get into our first point here, okay? As I said before, uh, what we see is that Paul says, he doesn't regret writing the letter, right? He initially did, he initially regretted writing it, but then um, later on, he doesn't. And, and it's really strange, right? Come with me in verse 9, this is what he says. He says, now I'm happy. Not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. Right? You see that in the passage? Right? Paul's discipline and confrontation through this hush letter has brought about what he had intended to achieve. Right? And he was so happy that the church came to their senses and realized their own fault and wrongdoing. Because Paul was well aware of how the Corinthians could have responded. Right? He knew of the different possibilities that the church could have taken this letter of his. Okay? When someone tells you off for something that you have done wrong, you know, I can think of at least three responses that people may have. Okay? Um, three different responses that you could possibly have when you are getting told off for something that you've done wrong. Okay? The first one is that you could choose to be indifferent. Okay? You can choose to be indifferent. The, the second response is that you could choose to be in denial, right? You can choose to be in denial. And then the third response is you can choose to be indignant, okay? In other words, you could be indifferent and choose not to respond. Uh, secondly, you could choose to deny the charges and plead innocence. And then thirdly, you could choose to retaliate in anger and resentment and basically cut off that person altogether, right? Those are the three responses, and yet those are not the not the responses we see in this passage, right? Um, even though we recognize that those responses would have been very unideal for the Apostle Paul, we see a fourth response, don't we? A radically different response from the first three. What we, what we see instead is that the Corinthian church were actually remorseful. They were actually remorseful. They were sorrowful for what they have done, which Paul was actually ever so thankful for. And so let me ask you this question, right? How do you know 
How do you know whether one is genuinely remorseful? How do you know? In other words, if someone has wronged you and they've apologized for something that they've done to you, how do you know whether their apology is a genuine one, right? How do you know if their apology is a genuine apology? Uh, two, two days ago, I've, I've had to sit in on a conflict between two people, and I've had to mediate that conflict, and it was a pretty bad one, and it was a messy conversation, and one party charged the other party for their insincerity on their apology, because they didn't think that their apology was genuine. And I, I think, you know, as we read this passage here, I think the Apostle Paul had a pretty high IQ, and EQ as well, and, and he could sort of tell the difference between a sincere and an insincere apology, right? And I think it's going to be helpful for us to understand those categories that Paul's using here in this passage that we see in front of us. And he uses the categories of godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. He gives us clues here in verse 10, right? Verse 10. Let me read it for us. He says this, that godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation Leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Godly sorrow leads to salvation. Worldly sorrow leads to death. A world of a difference between the two, right? And so let's define the terms. What is worldly sorrow? Well, what is worldly sorrow? Well, worldly sorrow is when you grieve over the consequences of your wrongdoing. Right? You grieve because you didn't cover up your sins properly. You grieve because your comfort and your security is in danger. You grieve because your pride has been punctured. You grieve because now you're exposed, right? In other words, what's the common denominator? It's all about you, isn't it? It's all about you. Worldly grief is inherently self-centered. You're never really grieving because you've, you've done wrong against a person you've grieved against, right? You grieve because you're embarrassed about what you've done. And, and you grieve because... The consequences are too much for you. You don't actually grieve because you're sorry for what you've done. See, that's, that's worldly grief. It's a grief for oneself. And Paul says this about worldly grief. It's a sort of grief that leads to death. Because so long as you never change the course of your path, you will walk down your own destruction. Um, I mentioned in the beginning that you know, I was a very difficult child for my parents and I think one of the habitual sins that I constantly struggled with in my childhood was that I would compulsively steal things, okay? I don't know whether you could recall much in your childhood or whether you probably have kids who have this particular problem, right? Uh, but uh, I did find in studies that children do often steal, and I was one of those kids, right? And I would often steal basically anything. I'll steal things from many places, and one of the most common places that kids generally steal from, you know, is from that, you know, that jar of coins that, that parents would usually have, it's usually sitting on the kitchen, and it's the change that you put in from going to the groceries and getting all that coin change. You, you know that sort of jar of coins I'm talking about, right? And I often used to steal from that jar of coins quite often. And now, I wasn't very discreet either, right? I wasn't always discreet because I usually take half the coins in that jar, and it's pretty obvious at that point that someone's taken something in that jar. And when I get caught red-handed for stealing, 
My mom would catch me out and I'll start crying. And I'm like, Mom, I didn't know. You know. I'm so sorry. I didn't know it was wrong, right? It's just a prank. Okay, it's just a prank. I'm just... Um, and, and in those first few instances when I would steal, right, there's usually a grace period. There's usually a grace period. And when you apologize, your parents would often give you the benefit of the doubt, at least firstly, right? They'll give you the benefit of the doubt that your apology is a sincere one. But, man, as I, as I think about my life from that point on, I never stopped stealing, okay? I never stopped stealing. I was never really sorry, okay? And, and that habit just went all the way up into high school for me, and it was a huge issue, right? And that is actually one example of worldly grief, right? And I think most of us understand this concept from the very beginning and early on in our childhood, right? Whether you are a compulsive thief like I am, or maybe you were a compulsive liar when you were young. I think most of us can understand this. That this worldly grief and sorrow produces nothing but death. But on the other hand, godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is a sorrow that comes from knowing that your actions are displeasing towards other people and ultimately towards God. Right? That this type of sorrow, this type of grief is one that recognizes they're not, they're not just sorry about the consequences, okay? They're not just sorry about breaking God's law. They are sorry for breaking God's heart. Right? That's what godly sorrow is. And I'll say it again, right? Godly sorrow is a type of sorrow where you are overwhelmed with guilt, you are overwhelmed with sorrow, right? Not just because you've broken God's law, but because you have broken God's heart. And Paul says this type of sorrow is what produces a repentance that leads to salvation. It leads to salvation. It's a type of sorrow that leads to eternal life. Life to the full. Right? Repentance means making a commitment to change the course of your life, to turn away from wrongdoing. Right? Repentance means to reject your old ways. Right? It means to do a 180 turn, to turn the other direction, and to be determined to live rightly moving forward. And as I rec- and uh, you know, as we, we talk about this, and as I read the passage, and as we continue thinking a little bit more about forgiveness and reconciliation and transformation, we we realize that this is counterintuitive for a lot of us, just generally speaking. I think it's quite counterintuitive because I think the language of godly sorrow implies that guilt and shame is a good thing. In this regard, that guilt and shame is a good thing in this regard. And, and let, let me explain a little bit more, right? Because I get the sense that our culture has come to this place now where there's indictment towards the whole concept of guilt and shame in the individual, right? Uh, let me explain further, right? I think we live in an in a individualistic society, okay, that prizes autonomy, it prizes freedom. Self-expression, you probably have heard those terms before, okay? And in our day and age of authenticity, it would be a challenge to say to someone that what you are doing with your life right now is absolutely shameful, right? I think it's very hard to sort of say those words to people, especially to people that we know in our circles, um, and they're, making, they're doing things in, in their lives that we don't necessarily approve of, right? Right? Um, and, and we often make these value judgments 
about the things that they're doing that's quite questionable. Like, like why are you sleeping with that person, right? Or, or why are you not embarrassed about the things you're doing, right? We can often think of those people in our minds, and um, despite the fact that we often show our disapproval about the things that we've seen other people do in their lives, we often can't voice them out. Because we're not allowed to do that, right? We're not allowed to express our, our disapproval of people's choices and decisions today because there's this whole idea of, I am my own person, right? I am my own person. Um, there's no reason for me to be sorry for who I am, okay? And so don't shame me for the things that I do because I am free to live the way that I please, okay? For me to feel guilt and shame is to imply that I've done something wrong and that there's something wrong with me, you see? But how could something be wrong with me when I'm the wrong? I'm, I'm the one that decides what is wrong. Okay? And I think that's the whole premise there, people in Western culture. And I think we've all lost, to some degree, the entire concept of shame. I think for many people, to live life to the full means to live shamelessly. Do you agree with that? To live life to the full means to live shamelessly. It means to ignore your conscience. It means to listen to your sinful heart. But in God's economy, that could not be any more wrong. Right? That to feel shame in the right way is actually a good thing, everybody. To feel shame in the right way is a good thing. When you feel pain in some sort on your body, right, it's actually telling you something. You know what it's telling you? There's something wrong. There's something wrong and you've got to get it fixed. You've got a problem somewhere in your body. And if you ignore the pain, you might damage your body without realizing. In a very similar way, painful emotions of guilt and shame are meant to signal something to us. That something's gone wrong. That we are not in right relationship with people and with God. And that there is a way to utilize shame, you know, as a healthy tool. You know, that could be a good thing. We, we don't often realize that, right? We can utilize shame and guilt as a helpful and healthy tool to move us forward to the path of righteousness. I'll give you an example, right? An example is that if you cheated on your spouse, for example, you should be 100% ashamed of that. You should be. If you've slandered someone in front of everybody, you should feel ashamed of that. If you have stolen goods from someone that don't belong to you, you should feel ashamed of that. And, and let me go even further. Let me, let me use one of those other demonstrations, right? Let's say that you've had an affair with someone, okay, with another person, and you failed at that point to commit yourself to your spouse and to God at that particular point, right? If you're having this affair with someone. And let's say that you were so blinded by your sin that you suppressed this guilt within you because you think it's not a good thing. I shouldn't feel guilty, right? And at some point you get caught. And when you get caught, you don't even realize how wrong you are. And so you continue on with the affair. And here's the thing. Consequences follow, right? With that sort of thing. Consequences follow. One thing leads to another. Your spouse finds out, okay? He tells the pastor, other people in your church are beginning to hear the news of your adulterous relationship with this other person. And at this point then, people start to see you differently. People start to see you differently. People are relating to you differently. And your friendships with people here in this church 
are beginning to change. And, and that is where the, the guilt and the shame start to settle in for you and start to really hit you, right? And it's those emotions that help us to think more deeply about what we have done to other people, what we have done to our spouses, and to think of ways we ought to actually change our lives moving forward. We need to listen to our God-given consciences. Guilt and shame alerts us to our wrongdoing and it leads us to repentance. It leads us to seek restoration and forgiveness from God and from other people. Contrary to what our culture says, to live life to the full is to recognize our shame. Okay? To live life to the full is to recognize our shame. Shame and sorrow can help us to know how we should change. Okay? Godly sorrow paves a way forward to new life. And so what does this godly sorrow look like? Right? That's, that's where we're heading off to next. That's our second point. What are the marks of godly sorrow? The marks of true repentance. In the beginning, I talked um, a bit about how degenerate and dysfunctional the Corinthian church was, right? They did a whole bunch of things that were wrong. Um, But what's refreshing about this passage here is that they got some things right, okay? And that's what we see here. We see that Paul, um, their spiritual father, the apostle Paul, he rejoices in the fact that they were being remorseful for what they have done to him. And that their sorrow has led to genuine repentance. Have a read with me in verse 11. Verse 11 says, See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. You see that there? And at every point you have proved yourself to be innocent in this matter. So, what, what is Paul saying here? True repentance does not stop at sorrow, right? True repentance actually demands real change. True repentance demands real change. And here's the thing. Paul was able to verify their repentance in, seven, in at least seven ways. We see that in this passage here. And what I've done is that I've helpfully summarized and consolidated those seven ways into four marks, okay? And you can write these down if you want, in your phone or whatnot. But here are these four ways. The first one is earnestness, okay? The first one's earnestness. The second one is eagerness. second one is eagerness. The third one is indignation. Indignation. And then the last one is fear. And let me just talk about each and every one of those marks, right? Those four marks right there. The first one is eagerness. Okay? True repentance is marked by eagerness. Eagerness? Okay. Earnest and zealous for what exactly? Eagerness to take repentance seriously. Right? Eagerness to take repentance seriously. Think of diligence is another word for this. right? Diligence is another word for this. And, and diligence is the opposite of what? Indifference. What genuine repentance requires is diligence, not indifference. And so what does that mean? It means you've got to work on killing your sin, not tomorrow, okay, but today. You've got to start working on it today, not tomorrow. Do it as soon as possible. That's what eagerness means in this sense. And that's the first one. The second one is more eagerness. It's similar, but let me give you the nuance here, right? 
what we see is that the, the Corinthians were eager to clear the names off the record. Okay? They were clear, and, and they didn't want to be defined by their sin. Right? They, were, they were longing to be known as advocates of righteousness. And, and likewise, what we see here in Scripture is that we should prove to others that we are working hard on the issues that people have raised about their concerns about us, about the sins that they've addressed, right? And we shouldn't work hard, for example, I just want to preface this, we, we shouldn't work hard to try and please other people. But I think that when we are working on sins and areas of improvement that, that people have actually told us, right, this is a problem in your life. You need to work on this sin. We should communicate our eagerness to change our old ways and that we should long to help people see tangible ways that we're actually working on that sin that we're struggling with, right? If your sin is gossiping or slandering, then you should make it your pursuit to change the nature of your conversations around people, right? Speak well of people and speak truth. If your sin is impatience, right, you should go out of your way to, to show grace to other people. If your sin is anger, right, you should demonstrate self-control and, and a desire to Pursue peace, right? Show your eagerness and your longing to clear your name. That's the second mark. And then the third mark is indignation, right? True repentance is marked by indignation. And what should you have indignation about? You should be angry and resentful over your own sin. Okay? And this is the sort of affection and emotions that God wants to develop in the heart of a Christian. You should hate sin. You should be angry at what sin can do to your relationship with God and to your relationships with other people. You should be angry about that, right? Be angry towards your own sin. That's the third mark. And then the last mark is fear. Fear about what? Not necessarily fear of, of whether people can catch you in your sin. That's not the sort of fear that Paul's talking about here, right? It's the fear of where sin could lead you. It's the fear of knowing what the consequences are of what sin can do to you and to other people. That's the sort of fear. It's an other person-centered fear, right? It's, a fear of, it's the fear of seeing other people affected by your sin, and it's the fear of harming your relationship with God. That's the fourth mark, fear. Those are all the marks of true repentance. Okay? And it's only when these are displayed in an individual will they have proved themselves to have shown their sorrow to be a godly sorrow. They've shown themselves to belong to Christ. Right? And um, as I'm saying all this, I wonder what you're thinking about right now, just based on all we've heard. Sounds pretty straightforward, right? It, it, in one sense, none of these things really sound new to you, I'm sure. I'm sure some of you guys have reflected on this in various ways, in, in particular moments in your Christian life, about what makes repentance genuine, right? Godly sorrow leads to salvation, you know, God, and worldly sorrow leads to death. And the scriptures have revealed to us what those differences are, but I wonder why you're, you're probably wondering as well whether there's actually something more to it than that, right? I wonder whether when we have sinned against other people, though we are conscious on some level about how genuine our apologies might be and, and, and how diligent we want to actually work on these sins and show people that we are making improvements and we're making progress in this area, how many of us feel like 
we actually want to put to death our own sin. Right? Who actually is eager always to be putting to death their own sin? Who is actually always angry about their own sin? Who is actually ever afraid of the consequences that their sin is going to bring out to themselves and to other people? Surely none of us here are ever like that all the time, right? Let's be real. I think so often in a Christian life, it seems quite impossible to change, right? It seems quite impossible to change. I think we always fall down and fall short of God's glory in various ways, in our wicked ways. Isn't that true? I think we always, for example, would say, you know, this is the last time I'm going to gossip about someone. This is the last time I'm going to blow up on my husband or my wife or on the kids, right? This is the last time I will look at porn, or this is the last time I'm going to be abrasive and unkind, right? I, I probably have caught myself saying all those things at some point all the time, only to repeat our sins once more, right? And I think when that happens, then we get frustrated. Then we get really frustrated at ourselves when we repeat the same mistakes. We, we thought we were better than that. Okay? And we often would say things like, gee, like when I was saying to other people that I was making progress in this area, was I lying to them? Right? I can't believe I did this again. Right? Why would I do this once again? I thought I was better than this. And I think when we have failed to see progress in various aspects of our Christian walk, and repeated the same mistake over and over and over and over again, I think it's easy to start hating ourselves, right? It's, it's so easy to hate ourselves, and, and maybe it's in, it's in our human pride that we assume we're capable of changing on our own, but we can't. I think that's what we need to realize that. We can't change ourselves through our own power. We need to realize that. The Bible says that our failure to change reflects a much darker reality about the nature of mankind. That all of us have fallen short of God's glory. And the reason why we cannot change is because in our sin, we don't want to change. Right? In our sin, we don't want to change. That's the reason why we can't change. When we're sorry, we're not always really sorry, are we? Right? And when we tell people we want to change, we, we actually don't always want to change. That's the reality of it. Because our old ways always seems to be much more gratifying. It always seems to be more pleasurable. Is it, all, is it ever possible to change? Good question, right? How do we make sure our tears of sorrow are actually genuine tears of sorrow? The good news is that in our total inability to cultivate genuine repentance and, and sincerity within ourselves, it actually points to a Savior who can. points to a Savior who can change us. And that's where we're heading to now. It's the last point I'm going to make. Have a look at verse 9 with me. If you have your Bibles open, have a look at verse 9. Paul says this, right? He says that, Now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended. Right? As God intended. Um, if you can highlight that, that would be good, right? Because it's saying something very profound here. The Corinthians never intended it. Right? This sort of repentance. This sort of um, genuine repentance. God intended it. God willed it. 
that the Corinthians would turn away from their disobedience, right? And, and so what's that saying? God, God is the author of our godly sorrow, right? And therefore, he is also the author of our repentance. Who, Timothy chapter 2, verses 25 says this about God. He is the one who grants repentance. It is only by his grace and strength and his power that change is possible in the Christian life. God enables us to seek through repentance. And he does so through the transformative work that he does in people's hearts by his spirit. He leads us, he guides us into new life in relationship with him through the work of his son on the cross. And by his Holy Spirit, God gives us these new desires, right? And these new longings to live for him. Repentance is not something we can do on our own, everybody. No one can truly repent unless God grants them repentance. And so we ought to thank God when we have come to this place now where we are now Christians, not necessarily because we managed to figure out the fact that we, we sinned against him and that, that our affections are aligned to his and, and we're genuine, but it's because God had intended it for you. See? And I, thought, I think that is ought to, to lead us into praise, right? That he is able and willing to save many of us to come to saving faith in him. And so, as we conclude, let me just give you one question to just ponder on as we finish up. Right? Ask yourself this question as we reflect about the sermon today. How will you remember to ask the Lord's strength to make change possible as you endeavor to live faithfully for him? How will you remember to ask the Lord's strength to help you to change as you endeavor to live faithfully for Him? I think in our sin, we often may feel like, boy, I have screwed up once again. I've made this mistake over and over and over again, and I am sick of it. I cannot change. And we need to ask and pray to God with sincerity. Lord, I am so sorry for the things I've done. I am unable and unwilling to express guilt, to express my grief and my sorrow over my sin in the appropriate way. Lord, help to change my heart. Change my heart. Give me that desire to change so that I can live a life in accordance to your will. So that I would live a life where I could rectify and restore my friendships with people. Lord, help me. Help me recognize that I can't change myself from within. Only grace can do that. If we ask and pray these things, then I am sure that we will experience the comfort of God, knowing that those who mourn deeply over their sin will be blessed abundantly. God intends to complete what he has started in our hearts. And so may we continue to ask God for his strength, to have full assurance and have full confidence that a genuine repentance is possible, absolutely possible, through Jesus Christ and through the Holy Spirit. Let me pray for us. Father, Lord, I just want to come before you on behalf of everyone here that we just want to ask that you would continue to change our hearts by your Spirit as we continue living faithfully for you and in the context of being in relationship with a whole bunch of people in our lives as well. Lord, we are conscious that sin is often quite destructive, and that when we have sinned and have wronged against other people, it 
usually breaks our relationships down. And Lord, often in these times, we might not be conscious of what we do to other people, but most other times we are. And we have seen the destructive effects that that has had on the people whom we love and cherish and also to our relationship with you. And, and Lord, we often don't crave this sort of forgiveness. We often love to continue living in our own sin and we just ask that you transform us. Just as you have done so with the Corinthians, that they were able to be remorseful and sorrowful for what they have done. Help us to cultivate true repentance by your Holy Spirit so that we actually might live to be at peace with other people and that we would be able to live life to the full. And so, Father, we want to commit all of this in your son's precious name. Amen.